Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So back in 1965, white people represented 85%. Non-Hispanic whites represented 85% of the American population. 50 years later, that proportion is 62% and falling. And this is largely attributed to the Hart-Seller Act of 1965 that reversed a 1924 immigration law that said that if the United States was 85% white, then 85% of all immigrants must be white. And the same for every other racial category. In other words, freezing America's racial divisions exactly where they were. That got reversed in 1965 by Lyndon Johnson. And Republicans and Democrats in Congress and it has had some uh, consequence. So it seems, in my opinion, this is what's animating all this hysteria around immigration. But uh, let's check in with Julio Rivera, the editorial director of Reactionary Times, contributor to Newsmax, the American Thinker, and townhall.com. Reactionarytimes.com is the website, and his uh, Twitter handle is, oh yeah, it's Julio. So why do Republicans support Trump and his cronies, white supremacist opposition to immigration reform? Oh, my God. Again, with the white supremacy and with the whole race thing. Listen, first off, your point when you were bringing up, you have to dip all the way back to legislation from 1924 and 1965 and all of these, this conspiratorial sort of way that you're trying to frame this argument. Listen, we have a serious problem. You want to talk about a serious issue? Let's talk about what's going on at the border right now. This is what happens when an irresponsible, going, probably senile president goes ahead and puts out the messaging that America is going to legalize 11 million illegal residents, basically rewarding people for their criminality. What they've done is that they've caused a Julio, boom. It's not, it's not Biden who ever said that. Market. It's no, the Republicans. Children. You've got Republicans. They, when Biden was elected, you had Republicans yelling, he's going to open the border. When no, Biden no, became president, himself. they were yelling, he's going to he open wants, the border. But, he wants to but the fact is this surge, if you want to call it that, started residents. in November. No, listen, that little girl that died trying to cross the Rio Grande, that's directly attributable to the rhetoric coming from the left. Coming and, oh, out of the America's right open. wing. We're going to open our arms up again. People, yeah, Joe you know, Biden the, never said listen, that. It, yeah, there no, has been literally no it is, it is change. A agenda, a policy agenda for them to try to legalize 11 million people. Don't tell me that that's not true. 
That was the policy position of Ronald Reagan. He invited 5 million people to become U.S. citizens, 2.7 million. amnesty from 40 years ago. Listen, it was wrong then, and it's wrong now. Julio, Joe Biden never said he's going to do amnesty. He has not changed any policy yes, with regard to... Yes, he did. He has. He has said to, that he would well, like he to let me finish my legalization sentence. and a pathway to citizenship to 11 million illegal residents. He has said it. Don't pretend like he hasn't, Tom. We do need comprehensive immigration reform. And I hope we can agree on this. Here's a, a presidential proposal, right? And I'll just read from it. To secure our border, we must create a temporary worker program. As we tighten controls of the border, we must also address the needs of America's growing economy. Many American businesses depend on willing foreign workers to do jobs Americans are not doing. We must provide a lawful channel for employment that will benefit them. Uh, It'll take the pressure off the border and free our hardworking border patrol to focus on terrorists. We must bring undocumented workers already in the country out of the shadows. Comprehensive immigration reform must account for the millions of immigrants already in the country. People have worked hard, supported their families, Families avoided crime, led responsible lives, to should become part of American life and should be called in out of the shadows and under the rule of American law. This is from a proposal that was put forward by George W. Bush. This is the Republican position. What's your problem with no, this? No, it's not the Republican position. That's the establishment position. Uh, the position of President Donald Trump was to seal the border, to dissuade people from coming into our country when we have look at coming off of this pandemic what you you tell me what the unemployment numbers how many extra millions of unemployed americans that we have and we want to give away jobs to people coming into our country illegally we're going to reward lawbreakers by giving them jobs that americans should be working what part of that makes sense tom julio joe biden has not changed our policy. He has not opened the border. It has been right-wing hate radio, Fox News, and people on the right like Mm -hmm. yourself who have been amplifying this message that Joe Biden was going to invite immigrants, and all of a sudden, people south of the border are thinking, oh, Joe Biden is going to invite immigrants. In fact, they have documented. He construction, Tom. What kind of message does that send to the world? I mean, Half of that border wall was in places where there was nobody even trying to cross. Julio, these are two separate issues, first of all. We've got children, you've got families coming who are fleeing terror. They're called refugees. And then you've got people who want to come and have jobs. You and I have had this conversation about the jobs before. If we you also just have you also gang members that are the bringing in drugs. Drugs. You have MS-13, the, Mel- the Medellin Well, obviously cartel, nobody wants those coast. people coming into this country, Julio. And to, to a large extent, we're not, not finding that, that they that are. Everybody that comes in here is a rapist or a murderer or a drug dealer. But if you leave the border open long enough, you're going to get enough of them trickling in. The border it's is like not the, open. the bowl of Skittles logic with uh, Donald Trump. The border Peter. is not open. If, would you eat the border a lot is of a not bowl open. of Skittles if... The border is not open. absolutely open. Joe Biden has not changed any policies with regard to the border being open. In fact, even the crossing points are by and large closed. Are you telling me catch and release coming back is not something that makes it attractive for people trying to come into the border, trying to come into the country? Catch and release is a disgusting, racist phrase used to describe international and U.S. law with regard to refugee-seeking asylum seekers. 
Listen, it's disgusting that you would even use that phrase. Seekers. If you got, if you got if hundreds somebody of thousands coming in at the border, they're not all asylum seekers. That's not true. They're coming to America because it's better than their country, but they're not under the immediate threat of being murdered or being persecuted or being oppressed if they don't come to the Ameri- to America right know? away. There are some people that do have political pressure on them for whatever activities they've taken part in within their country but that is more the exception and not the rule tom and you know that you know that you want 11 million new democratic Julio, under our laws agenda that's the what you only want, people the only people who are quote caught and released i mean you know obama deported more people than george w bush did the only people who are quote caught and released yeah, are people who are people claiming came asylum. Into the border under under obama and they though, too, and they the show time. up for their and they show up for their court hearings even if they're a year or two later at greater than 90 percent oh. greater than 90 percent of them come back and say yes i am willing to prove that my life is in danger if i'm returned to guatemala or, or el salvador I'm just astonished that you're repeating this racist meme that is floating around in, on right-wing racist. blogs. It's not racist. It's common sense, Tom. Listen, we're in a pandemic right now. We've had millions of job losses. We can't afford it, Tom. We can't afford this anymore. And the way that you keep people from coming through the border is by sending a clear, comprehensive message that America's closed. This is not our... These are That's not what, our funds. We can provide assistance to those governments again, to the deal with their own is issues if we have to. It's, it's right-wingers telling people in Central America that the border is open, but the border is not open. Julio Rivera, editorial director, Reactionary Times, contributor to Newsmax, American Thinker, Town Hall, ReactionaryTimes.com, on Twitter. Oh, yeah, it's Julio. Julio, thanks for dropping by. It's always good. uh, Thank you, as always. Bye-bye. This (laughs) is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Tom Hartman Program. So what say you? Should we uh, change our border policies? Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz. Buenos dias. Hola, me. <laughs> hey, hey, you're cutting into my action there, Mr. Hartman. <laughs> hey, Sorry. hey I don't, at least I don't have to go exercise today because my blood pressure is already up. Okay. Same here. Right, listen, here's the thing we need to say about racists. Is there's no such thing as an intelligent racist, and they probably never set foot in their own country, sometimes their own state. These people need to educate themselves and find out who Steve. Hey, hang on just a second, Chaz. One of the two guys who who discovered DNA was Crick and Watson, and I'm pretty sure it was. Well, I'm not sure. I don't frankly remember which one of the two of them, but one of them was a big endorser of scientific racism. You know, he was all over this to the day he died. He got outed for it. And, you know, in the last years of his life, he's dead now and uh, was kind of humiliated. But he was a very smart man. This was like 10 years ago. All right, I'm going to look into it, Tom. You've made, you have assigned me homework for the day, but we need to find, <laughs> Dis- we need to see. Yeah, just put okay. discoverer of DNA racist, and I'm sure it'll pop right up. Uh, right. Well, what people need to look up is immigrant paradox. And another phrase I'm going to give you at the end, we used to hear a lot about, but I just want to say that, look, a third of all U.S. Nobel Prizes in the sciences have been earned by immigrants. We're talking like 95 out of 300. Yeah. Heck, over half of American billion-dollar startups are created by immigrants. The other phrase 40% of all is, new businesses in America are created by immigrants right now. 
So crying out loud, if small businesses are the crucible of jobs, why are we shooting ourselves in the foot? Hybrid vigor, immigrant paradox, this is what's making America stronger. We're, we're light years ahead of everybody else because of it. Yeah, I completely agree. Chaz, thanks for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. And, uh, you know, buenas noches or whatever. Ed in, <laughs> or ciao. Ed in Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, Ed, what's up? Hi, Tom. He kind of stole my thunder. I was going to mention blood pressure, but I'll just say that I think my ears are bleeding. I want to say four things very quickly. Number one, a thank you. And to people out there that have not read Call Me Ishmael, please do. Number two, I would love, this is a wish, I would love if you could get Greta Thunberg on your program for an entire hour. We have invited her several times. Okay. Number three, there's four things, bear with me. Number three, I believe that Trump got into office from a general dislike of Hillary, and I think that Joe got in from a general dislike of Donald. And number four, at the core of Trumpism is not only Donald himself and what's at the core of him, but what's at the core of his steadfast believers. And it can also be the, uh, the campaign slogan if he decides and is able to run again in 24. Very simply, it's two words, me first. Yeah. Yeah. What was your third point again, Ed? My third point was that what allowed Donald to get in. Oh, I remember. I remember that that people were basically voting against Hillary and against Trump rather than for anybody. I can't disagree with that altogether, but I would say that what Joe Biden is doing right now is going to give them a strong reason to vote for Joe Biden or any other Democrat in 2024. Ed, I got to run. So just just to make it clear, George W. Bush's plan for comprehensive immigration reform, you can read it on the uh, on George W. Bush-whitehouse.archives.gov. These are the official U.S. government archives of the George W. Bush presidency. The president supports a rational middle ground between a program of mass deportation and a program of automatic amnesty. In addition to paying a meaningful penalty, undocumented workers must learn English, pay their taxes, pass a background check, and hold a job for a number of years before they will be eligible to be considered for legalized status. This is George W. Bush. This was endorsed by the Republican Party in 2007. Any undocumented worker seeking citizenship must go to the back of the line. By the way, this was also proposed by, as I recall, Bill Clinton. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure. The program should not reward illegal conduct by making, I'm reading from George W. Bush's position, should not reward illegal conduct by making participants eligible for citizens ahead of those who have played by the rules and followed the line. Instead, program participants must wait their turn at the back of the line. And then uh, number five, we must promote assimilation into our society by teaching new immigrants English and American values. He's proposing actually an educational program for people who want to become U.S. citizens to improve their English skills. If you want to look it up, it's part of his 2007 State of the Union address. It's from a section of the White House archives called 2007 State of the Union Policy Initiatives in Focus, colon, Immigration. And it's titled President Bush's Plan for Comprehensive Immigration Reform. 
And, you know, very straightforward stuff. And just to get some actual facts about what's going on on our border, Judd Legum published this this morning in his newsletter over at popular.info. The headline is Media Crisis Border Facts. And what happened was uh, Title 42 is basically the public health code. It gives the president extraordinary powers, Title 42 of the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, the CFR. Title 42 allows the uh, executive branch, the president, during a health emergency to block, or actually even during, uh, I'm not sure it has to be declared as a health emergency, but to, but to, uh, you know, to take measures, extraordinary measures, like you know, detaining people, locking people up, putting them in holding facilities when they represent a public health threat. And that was the rationale, that was the law that he used to detain asylum seekers on a more or less permanent basis in for-profit prisons that earned them tens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars money, a large chunk of which was recycled into the coffers of Republican politicians. And here's where it gets weird. As of this moment, this is from the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, this is the ACLU, this is today, quote, as of this moment, the Biden administration has left Trump's policy of using Title 42 to immediately expel asylum seekers in place. It's still there. There is a smaller surge, Judd writes, in the apprehensions of families and unaccompanied children, but that surge started in November of 2020. There was a court ruling by a federal judge that, uh, you know, holding these people under the uh, under Title 42 was a violation of another law called the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, which says that if somebody says that they're a victim of human trafficking, we have to take them in, we have to take care of them, we have to protect them, and we have to hear their case, and then we can kick them out if, if we think that they're lying. And Judd notes, after that order was lifted this year, Biden did not resume using Title 42 to expel unaccompanied children. But there was no change in policy. In February, the Biden administration stopped immediately deporting most families as well, again, using Title 42. But again, that policy is still in place. The overall number of apprehensions of families and unaccompanied children today remains far below what it was in 2019. I guess that's, you know, which is a point that I should have made more uh, loudly to Julio. And, you know, he's not here to defend himself, so I'm not going to pick on him and go beyond that. But my, mea culpa, right? My bad. I should have pointed that out. I should have opened with that. Biden has not changed the most salient policies, and the surge, which is far from unprecedented, began months before Biden was sworn into office. The question, why are so many kids coming to the border alone? There has been no major shift in the Biden administration's policies regarding these children. Well, he says kids tend, by children, we're talking about mostly boys between 13 and 17 years old. In fact, in in many cases, entirely boys, 13 to 17. And he notes that they tend to migrate in waves, which just makes sense. There's safety in numbers. You're, You're traveling through territory that is controlled by gangs and killers and pirates and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And the Congressional Research Service, this is the official arm of Congress that investigates pretty much anything Congress asks it to, 
said that uh, misconceptions about United States policy may influence children as much as the policies themselves. In other words, right-wingers running around yelling, Joe Biden opened the border, oh my God, oh my God, he opened the border, oh my God. That lie, that what the CRS refers to as a misconception, is not just staying in America where it's being said on right-wing hate radio constantly. It's being echoed in Central and South America. And the question is, you know, why are we so unprepared to deal with them? Well, because Trump gutted our capability of dealing with immigrants. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In our book club today, our book is Border Wars, Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration by Davis and Scheer. This is from the uh, prologue on page five. Uh, Donald John Trump never meant for a giant wall across the entire southwest border to be the totem of his presidential campaign or the icon of his presidency. And he certainly never thought it would be the omnipresent reminder of his biggest frustrations in the White House. But it's because of all those things and the story of how it did, or what it became, all, but it became all those things. And the story of how it did is the story of Trump's assault on immigration. Conceived of almost by accident out of political expediency and sheer marketing powers, the wall perfectly captured the us versus them spirit that animated Trump's candidacy, became a symbol of the same working class disaffection and sense of alienation that he had first tapped into by questioning Barack Obama's birthplace. For a politically inexperienced president who is untethered from any particular ideology, the wall was a centering force, an organizing principle for his promises. He would fix what was broken in the country. And what better symbol of America's problems than a deeply dysfunctional immigration system that had become a third rail of politics, too charged for either party to touch? Trump vowed to cut through all that, a Manhattan developer who would take a figurative hammer and nail to the task. In doing so, he would gleefully raise a middle finger to political correctness and to the Republican establishment that was looking for ways to appeal to Hispanic voters. And while he was at it, Trump would fan the flames of fear and insecurity by promising to wall off the United States from the threats he imagined were just across the threshold. The them who looked and sounded different from us. Was it racism, nativism, xenophobia? 
Trump and those who knew him best swore that it was not. But Trump's instincts clearly tended toward bigotry, the belief that foreigners were a threat and the native-born Americans were inherently more deserving. And his agenda held deep appeal to white supremacists and others who had felt shut out of politics in America for years, chastised for their views and obsessed with an agenda of racial purity. The appeal for Trump was much simpler and more basic. He was a marketing genius, a branding maven, and fear of the other, he discovered at his campaign rallies, sells like gangbusters. It worked as well on audiences in places like Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, whose once thriving industrial manufacturing workers felt displaced and distraught, as it did in states on the border with Mexico that had been profoundly changed by immigration and immigrants. But as potent a campaign message as the wall became for Trump, and as strong as its gravitational pull grew after he took office, it also stood as a symbol of everything that plagued his immigration policy. It reflected Trump's fixation with ideas that had political power, but were often impossible to implement. His ever-changing dictates about its dimensions and materials were the most concrete examples of the whims of a fickle and deeply insecure president who always grasped for the solution that looked toughest. He pursued the wall over the objections of the career public servants who always knew that a wall was not the solution, just as he would disregard their advice and legal counsel on so many other immigration matters. It was a one-dimensional approach to a complex problem, in large part based on his own ignorance. His determination to build the wall over the objections of Congress reflected his cavalier approach to the law, which invited court challenges at every turn. The years-long war he waged over the wall revealed a bundle of contradictions that was Trump himself, a resident of one of the most diverse cities on the planet, who married two immigrants, but was hostile to outsiders. A businessman, enamored of cheap and readily available labor, who pressed for cuts to legal immigration. A self-styled master negotiator who could not cut a deal with Congress on immigration to save his life. Build that wall was the incessant soundtrack of Trump's frenzied campaign rallies. But once in office, he discovered that doing so was an operational, legislative, and legal quagmire that would swallow up his political capital and leave him deeply frustrated. It was a pattern that played out on every level of Trump's immigration agenda. His Muslim ban was an early indication of how the rush to fulfill his campaign promises could sow chaos and spark court challenges. Plotted in secret because Trump's advisors were certain deep state bureaucrats would kill it in the cradle, the travel order embodied the president's approach. Propose something outrageous, divisive, and potentially illegal. Watch your political opponents lose their minds criticizing it. Ask questions and provide policy rationales later. Trump's decision to end protections for dreamers, the undocumented young immigrants who have been brought into the United States as young children, set the stage for months of fighting with Congress and revealed his conflicting instincts, a desire to be seen as compassionate even as he disparaged S-hole countries in Africa and unleashed bare-knuckled tactics on immigrants. His decision to separate migrant children, some just a few months old, from their parents at the border pointed up profound conflicts inside his administration. Some had warned of the dire consequences of a plainly cruel tactic, while others argued that it was the only effective way to deter a horde of migrants from rushing the border. It was one of the only times that Trump retreated under pressure unwilling to endure a backlash that included members of his own family. And a curious thing, perhaps predictable in retrospect, happened as Trump's immigration crackdown unfolded throughout the country. An actual crisis, different but no less urgent than the one he was constantly warning Americans about, began to develop and worsen at the border. 
Border Wars by Davis and Shear. Welcome back. Just a, a heads up on some of the things that are happening around the country. Here in Oregon, there's no real con- controversial legislation before the uh, before the chamber, and there are uh, 60 people in the House of Representatives here in Oregon. Uh, only 23 of them are Republicans, but uh, they they are demanding that every piece of legislation that is proposed be read out loud. You know, like like we saw like this little trick that Ron Johnson tried to do with the COVID relief bill. And so uh, here in Oregon, this is from the, uh, the Oregonian today, an article by Hillary Borod. A computer will take the place of state house clerks who face the task of reading bills, some of them hundreds of page, pages long, aloud because minority Republicans have insisted on it. None of the bills scheduled for a vote in the near term are hugely controversial, but refusing to waive the state's constitutional bill reading requirement is one of the few power moves available to Republicans who hold 23 of the seats in the 60-member House as they try to change or block parts of Democrats' agenda this session. So they've got a computer. It's going to sound like Stephen Hawking. And in Kentucky... The Republicans who control the House and Senate, keep in mind, Andy Bashir, the governor, is a Democrat. The majority of people in Kentucky vote for Democrats. But because of a gerrymandering, they send more Republicans to the House of Representatives. Well, then they've got Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. McConnell was just reelected last year in what I would say was a pretty sketchy election, but that's a whole other issue. And he's 79 years old. And if he were to uh, become disabled or croak while in office at the age of 79, his replacement would be appointed by the Democrat, Andy Bashir, the governor. So the Republicans passed a law in Kentucky saying that they get to replace the United States senator, or a, it didn't specifically name McConnell, a United States senator if he, if he or she becomes disabled. And uh, Andy Bashir vetoed it, and they overrode his veto. There you go. So, anyway, let's pick up some of your phone calls here and uh, see what see what your thoughts are on all of these issues that we've been talking about today. Bill in Campwood, Texas. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? I live about seventy miles from the border, and my brother lives about a mile from the border, and mm-hmm. neither one of us have had a problem at all with people, you know, coming across the border. Nothing ever stolen, no problems whatsoever. And last week, a guy from Ozona, Texas, said that 500, 700, 800 people were coming across the border at one time. That cannot be true. That's, that's, yeah. I've talked to several Border Patrol agents. That is impossible. 500 people. I, I was wondering if this guy was just, you know, one of these cranks who calls into radio shows and just makes crap up. It sounds like you're saying he was. I think he was because I've heard these stories, and it's always further away that it happens. It's never close, you know. And 500 people coming across the border, the Border Patrol would have caught in five minutes. I mean, they make too much noise. The biggest group probably any Border Patrol agent's ever seen is maybe 50, and a large group would be 30, and average is like 6 to 12. That's what they tell me anyway. That they see right. on a regular basis. So it's, right. he was not telling you the truth. <laughs> okay. Bill, thank you. Thank you very much for the report from, from Texas. 
an actual okay. report from Texas. <laughs> Bill, good talking to you. And thanks again for watching Free Speech TV. Dan in Seattle. Hey, Dan, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? I just kind of wanted to talk to you about the same kind of thing, too, that we've been talking about here. Um, the root cause of the reason people are coming across the border is because that rich white Republicans hire them to work in their factories and their businesses. And nobody goes after that. And yeah, for the people who are not refugees, the people who are just seeking a better life in America, I absolutely agree with you. And we need to start putting the rich white Republicans in jail. I mean, like every other developed country in the world does, by the way, you know, I mean, you enforce your immigration laws and there's nothing racist about that. You know, one of the largest groups of illegal immigrants in the United States, people who are, have overstayed their visas are Irish. <laughs> Anyhow, back to you, Dan. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, we need to stop arguing about the fence and the border patrol, and we need to start talking about the root cause, which is if you came to this country illegally, but you couldn't get a job, you're not going to last here very long, right? So, but the folks that are taking advantage of that situation are rich, white, possibly Republican business owners in a lot of cases, and nothing's happening to them. And honestly, if you look at the history of the United States, this country's always been run off of cheap immigrant labor, all the way back to probably some of your grandparents that came here from Ireland and Italy and other places about 100 years ago and got basically made fun of, called all kinds of racist names, but that's who worked in these crappy jobs that ran the factories and all the little, you know, those kinds of things that helped America get started. So really, we've been arguing about the same thing for about 150 years, and the root cause is that rich people make a bunch of money off of cheap immigrant labor, and until we stop that, we're not going to, the argument's going to continue. Yeah. It says here you wanted to call about the uh, the guy who said he was a Navy in, in the Navy and voted for Trump. Did you have something cogent to yeah, add to I, that, Dan? Or I guess I was just a little bit concerned that he had no idea that the, that Trump was a racist after he opened his uh, initial campaign, basically, with Mexicans or rapists. And then also said yeah. that Basically, a bunch of white supremacists marching around Virginia were fine people. So, I don't, I mean, that's just in the beginning. I could probably name about 50 other instances where he made comments that were racist. So, I just don't understand how, yeah, how you missed Yeah, there's that literally a Wikipedia thing. page for them, you know, Trump's comments on race. Well, you know, this is radio. I, I can't vet people beyond you know, taking their name and their address and and having their phone number entered into our database. But I can't say that he is who he said he was. He he may or may not be. But, you know, I I think that there, you know, again, when I lived in D.C., I lived in a marina and there were a lot of Navy and Coast Guard people around me who I knew. I I knew many of them. And, uh, you know, quite a few of them voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and then voted for Donald Trump in the general. Um, It wasn't about race for them. It was about wanting America to repudiate Reaganism, basically, because both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders ran on a platform. Um, You know, Bernie, I mean, uh, Donald had a a whole lot of racism thrown into it, but both of them ran on a general platform of, of overturning 40 years of neoliberalism, whether it was Bill Clinton's Democratic neoliberalism or Ronald Reagan's Republican neoliberalism, America was over it. And I think that that's true. But uh, yeah. but to say that, uh, you know, hey, I, I, it didn't even occur to me that Donald Trump was a racist is, 
if nothing else, I would say belies a, a level of naivete that is somewhere between sad and shocking. Dan, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Ed in Belfair, Washington. Hey, Ed, what's up? Hey, hi, Tom. Uh, Dan stole my thunder. He hit the nail on the head. But uh, it's all about cheap labor. That's all they want. Um, it's, a, it's a scare tactic. I kind of wonder what's going to happen with all the destruction in the South and all these homes going to be rebuilt. And it's going to be wage theft. There's going to be cheap labor. Anything that the federal government funds through FEMA, they should all be union. They should be union carpenters. Mm. Everybody should be unionized. Yeah. yeah. That would be a good idea, and prevailing wage laws would be useful, although I'm pretty sure that there's not a single state in the South that has prevailing wage laws. And what those laws require is that any government-funded rebuilding, and I think FEMA rebuilding might qualify under this, although I, I may well be wrong. It might be that FEMA just gives you a pile of money and you do it yourself. But anytime federal money is being used in a state to do anything, you know, build a highway, build a freeway, repair potholes, whatever it may be, whether you're hiring union labor or not, you have to pay the prevailing wage, and the prevailing wage is typically set by union labor. And yeah. so, hey, might as well be a union member. And I, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Uh, you know, well said. It's the Tom Hartman program. Telling the truth, the multinational corporations are not all that excited about your learning. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And isn't it ironic that chauvinism doesn't just apply to male chauvinism, that it's basically any form of bias. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. What an amazing moment in American history, isn't it? I mean, really? Amanda in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Amanda, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks for taking the call. I just wanted to kind of off the bat mention a couple of books that have been super helpful for me and all of this. Is that all right? Can I just mention a couple sure. off the top? So the first is Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock, and the other is Your Body is Not an Apology, and that's by Sonia Ray Taylor. Both have <laughs> incredible presences online, so you can find out a lot about them. But I wanted to mm-hmm. start it out that way just because that's kind of where I'm coming from, which is, and it might be based on my own trauma, but it's self-reflection. And 
I tend to interpret all of what's going on as just old patterns of this idea that you deserve something based on where you come from. And um, mm-hmm. that is a falsehood. I think it's a lie that we tell ourselves in order to get through and cope. But I think that's kind of where Julio is coming from, this sense that he deserves something. And I'm, I'm assuming he goes by he. Mm-hmm. Something that is given based on his position. That's a backwards point of view. And I think as we become more open to different interpretations, especially those of women who have been um, shunned in history and history books, as we all know, um, there's a serious need for self-reflection and understanding of where we come from, what we have been given, the privileges that we own, and that we we hold dear to our hearts, and where we can give. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm coming from, and really where I think our nation and the world as a whole needs to turn around. Listen to those who've been quieted. Listen to those who are currently quieted. Create spaces for them if you have the power to. And that, I mean, I really appreciate your show for that from all perspectives. So that's where I'm, what I wanted to say. So thank you. Yeah. I, I was in a, um, in a meeting over the weekend and the woman who began it, uh, who's just an extraordinary person who I really admire, started out the meeting by saying, let's uh, honor the people who were the original occupants of the land that we're on. And uh, and then she uh, she's in uh, up in Minnesota, and so she named the tribes you know of the land that she's living on, and then mm-hmm. other people in the meeting. And it was just into the into the chat part of the of the meeting uh, of the Zoom call uh, were able to uh, a few of them, um, uh, and one of one of my colleagues who lives here in Portland uh, identified mm-hmm. the tribes here, and there was a link to a map where you could see which tribes were the ones who lived on the land that you're currently living on. And I looked, oh, yeah. and I'm in Multnomah County, and I didn't even realize that there was a Multnomah tribe that used to live oh, here. Oh, wow. You yeah. I, 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 I thought that, too. you know, I knew the word, I knew it was an, English, an Indian word, but I didn't realize it was the name of a tribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm, I appreciate the space to just say it out loud, you know. I think the more that yeah. there are those, the better. Yeah. And, so thank you And again. the acknowledgement. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah. Great to hear from you. Appreciate it. You know, in the context of the uh, George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, the George Floyd murder trial of Derek Chauvin and uh, so much else that's going on, the, the hysteria around brown people coming across our southern border, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's important that we have reasonable, thoughtful and meaningful, deep conversations about where this racism came from in American society beyond just the, you know, kind of throwaway line of, oh, yeah, well, we had slavery, you know, which is obviously a, a major piece of this, but but it just seems to derail larger and deeper conversations sometimes about what do we do right now and how did we get here and, and what about things like Plessy v. Ferguson and where are we at under law? And so on the line with us is Professor John A. Powell. He's a professor of law as well as a professor of African-American studies and ethnic studies 
the Robert D. Haas Chancellor's Chair in Equity and Inclusion and the Director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley Law School. He's also the author of numerous books, including Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Concepts of Self and Others, to build an inclusive society. Law.berkeley.edu is his website, and you can tweet him at Prof. John Powell, spelled just the way it sounds. Professor Powell, welcome to the program. If we could start out, how do you define systemic racism in the United States? What's the context? How do we put the Chauvin trial in that context? Well, thank you, Thomas. It's great to be on your show. One way of thinking about systems is just that the word suggests there are things in relationship to each other. So, for example, you think of a school system, it's not just a teacher, it's also the principal, it's also the building, it's also the curriculum, it's also the tax system, it's also the students, it's all those things in, interacting with each other. And so when you think about this trial, first of all, just the fact that there have been, unfortunately, a number of black and brown people killed by the police because they're black and brown. But very seldom are the police actually charged, first of all, let alone guilty. Why is that? It's because it's the system. It's not just the individual police officer. He or she is trained. He or she is armed. He or she is sound to the community. And more recently, since the 1980s, they oftentimes use military equipment. It's a system. And so it can't be fixed simply at one point. And now there's a trial. The trial is part of the system. So and many to- people in the community don't trust the system at all, so they don't trust the trial. Yeah, I totally get that. So it seems to me like there's two pieces of this, or at least that I'd like to discuss with you. The first is, you know, how did we get here? Outside of the cliches, I know that you've written that a lot of this derives out of Plessy v. Ferguson, which had never occurred to me. I mean, you know, I know what it is, and I know what its consequences were, but but I don't understand the larger context. I'm not a scholar of this stuff. And secondly, what do we do about it? So we have a new article on Russell Sage, so I'll just say that, which the whole volume is devoted to Plessy. People will remember that Homo Plessy was what we what was called an octoroon. We don't use that term anymore, but it means he was seven eighths white. Uh, he was he phenotypically looked white. So one of the things and this is in uh, Louisiana, and Louisiana had passed a law saying that essentially blacks could not ride or Negroes could not ride in boxcars with whites unless they were taking care of their children. Um, and out of that came the doctrine of separate but equal, that blacks could get on trains, but they had to have their own car. They were separated, but they were equal. Uh, so Plessy did a number of things. It sort of cemented the already emerging Jim Crow um, laws and practices coming out of the South. And Jim Crow was in part a response to uh, the uh, Civil War, the Civil War amendments, and Lincoln's push to have blacks part of the society. I mean, that's what he was, that was, that was his vision before he, he died. And that was the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, uh, 15th being voting. Uh, and there was 12 years from, 19, from 1865 to 1877 Reconstruction that blacks were being elected, blacks were uh, living um, all over. Uh, and then there was essentially an agreement to end that um, where the Republicans, which were the good guys in the story, or gooder guys, I should say, they pulled out of the South, and in order to resolve a presidential election, they allowed the South to uh, 
resubordinate blacks, and that was the start of Jim Crow and the end of Reconstruction. And then you had all kinds of laws and rules, and you had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and then in 1896, um, the Plessy versus Ferguson case came. Many of these things were already in place, but the court crystallized it by saying, despite the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, 13th disrupting slavery, not totally ending it, 14th doing a number of things, advancing citizenship and equality, and the 15th advancing voting. So you had these three monumental shifts in our Constitution. Despite that, Plessy then says, well, equal doesn't mean that really equal. As long as it's, so the states can separate groups as long as they provide equal provisions. And they never did. And it's sort of just cemented the ability to actually create different worlds for blacks and whites. And it also allowed states to define who's black and white. Plus, he was arguing that he was seven-eighths white. Not, he was arguing that he wasn't really black. He was an octoroon. Right. Uh, and the court said, no, it's up to each state to decide who's black and who's uh, white. Uh, the construction, and, and that's what they did. And then you had things like the one-drop rule and all that. So it has a long history, a long tail. It's still not only dis- distributing resources, but distributing identity. Right. Um, we're talking with Professor John Powell of uh, the UC Berkeley Law School and uh, uh, the uh, professor of African-American studies and ethnic studies. Um, professor Powell, we have about a minute and a half before we're going to crash head on into a hard break where the machine is going to stop us. Um, where do we go from here? What do we do? I, you know, I, I understood that in 54, Brown essentially overturned Plessy, but, um, you know, in all due time, right? Or if that was the phrase. Yeah. What do we do now? It's, well, we have to keep working at it. So Brown said, yes, that Plessy essentially was wrong. But it also, there's Brown 1 and 2, but it also, so it said, this is a complicated system, you know, it's deeply entrenched in the country. We can't change it all in one fell swoop. So there's Brown 2, which announced, let's make change, but let's do it in all deliberate speed, which means slowly. Deliberate speed. So it didn't, yeah. deliberate speed. And so nothing happened, essentially, for many years. And so the court was recognizing that this is a system, that it can't be changed in one fell swoop. But they also laid the foundation for not much change happening. We have to do better than that. We can do, we have to, yes, things can be changed in one suit, but they have to be changed. And it's not all deliberate speed. Um, so, and policing is a big part of that. It's not the only part of it. Economics, housing, um, you know, immigration, you talked about, all these things are part of it. Uh, and we have to really engage it. And like you said at the beginning of the program, we actually don't know this history or understand how we got here. Um, which is part of how we get to where we need to be. Yeah, well, you're doing an extraordinary job of, of filling it all in and educating people, and I know educating your students and with your writings. Um, uh, the, uh, let's see, the journal here, hang on just a second, let me get that information. Oh, RussellSage.org is uh, the Russell Sage Foundation, and the piece is Plessy v. Ferguson and the Legacy of Separate but Equal. Professor, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. My Thank pleasure. You. Very nice meeting you. Professor John A. Powell. Uh, John, Prof. John Powell A. Powell is his Twitter handle. John A. Powell. Mm-hmm.
In the Tom Hartman Book Club today, our book is by France Fanon, and it's The Wretched of the Earth. This is from the chapter On National Culture on page 145. It sort of reads like uh, Thomas Paine, actually. Each generation must discover its mission, fulfill it, or betray it in relative opacity. In the underdeveloped countries, preceding generations have simultaneously resisted the insidious agenda of colonialism and paved the way for the emergence of the current struggles. Now that we are in the heat of combat, we must shed the habit of decrying the efforts of our forefathers or feigning incomprehension at their silence or passiveness. They fought as best they could with the weapons they possessed at the time, and if their struggle did not reverberate throughout the international arena, the reason should be attributed not so much to a lack of heroism, but to a fundamentally different international situation. More than one colonized subject had to say, we've had enough. More than one tribe had to rebel. More than one peasant revolt had to be quelled. More than one demonstration had to be repressed for us to stand firm, certain of our victory. For those of us who are determined to break the back of colonialism, our historic mission is to authorize every revolt, every desperate act, and every attack aborted or drowned in blood. In this chapter, we'll analyze the fundamental issue of the legitimate claim to a nation. The political party that mobilizes the people, however, is little concerned with this issue of legitimacy. Political parties are concerned solely with daily reality. And it is in the name of this reality, in the name of this immediacy, which influences the present and future of men and women, that they make their call to action. The political party may very well speak of the nation in emotional terms, but it is primarily interested in getting the people who are listening to understand that they must join in the struggle if they quite simply want to exist. We now know that in the first phase of the national struggle, colonialism attempts to diffuse nationalist demands by manipulating economic doctrine. At the first sign of a dispute, colonialism feigns comprehension by acknowledging with ostentatious humility that the territory is suffering from serious underdevelopment that requires major social and economic reforms. And it is true that certain spectacular measures, such as the opening of work sites for the unemployed here and there, delay the formation of a national consciousness by a few years. But sooner or later, colonialism realizes it is incapable of achieving a program of socioeconomic reforms that would satisfy the aspirations of the colonized masses. Even when it comes to filling their bellies, colonialism proves to be inherently powerless. The colonial state very quickly discovers that any attempt to disarm the national parties at a purely economic level would be tantamount to practicing in the colonies what it did not want to do in its own territory. And it is no coincidence that today the doctrine of Cartierism is on the rise just about everywhere. Cartier's bitter disillusionment with France's stubborn determination to retain ties with people it will have to feed, whereas so many French citizens are in dire straits, reflects colonialism's inability to transform itself into a nonpartisan aid program. Hence, once again, no need to waste time repeating, better to go hungry with dignity than to eat one's fill in slavery. On the contrary, we must persuade ourselves that colonialism is incapable of procuring for colonized people the material conditions likely to make them forget their quest for dignity. Once colonialism is understood where its social reform tactics would lead it, back come the old reflexes of adding police reinforcements, dispatching troops, and establishing a regime of terror better suited to its interests and its psychology. Within the political parties, or rather parallel to them, we find the cultured class of colonized intellectuals. The recognition of a national culture and its right to exist represent their favorite stopping ground. Whereas the politicians integrate their action in the present, the intellectuals place themselves in the context of history. 
faced with the colonized intellectuals debunking of the colonist theory of a pre-colonial barbarism, colonialism's response is mute. It is especially mute since the ideas put forward by the young colonized intelligentsia are widely accepted by metropolitan specialists. It is in fact now commonly recognized that for several decades, numerous European researchers have widely rehabilitated African, Mexican, and Peruvian civilizations. Some have been surprised by the passion invested by the colonized intellectuals in their defense of a national culture. But those who consider this passion exaggerated are strangely apt to forget that their psyches and their egos are conveniently safeguarded by the French or German culture whose worth has been proven and which has gone unchallenged. I concede the fact that the actual existence of an Aztec civilization has done little to change the diet of today's Mexican peasant. I concede that whatever proof there is of the once mighty Songhai civilization does not change the fact that the Songhais today are undernourished, illiterate, abandoned to the skies and water with a blank mind and glazed eyes. But as we have said on several occasions, this passionate quest for a national culture prior to the colonial era can be justified by the colonized intellectuals' shared interest in stepping back and taking a hard look at the Western culture in which they risk becoming ensnared. Fully aware that they're in the process of losing themselves and consequently of being lost to their people, these men work away with raging heart and furious mind to renew contact with their people's oldest inner essence, the furthest removed from colonial times. Let us delve deeper. Perhaps this passion and this rage are nurtured, or at least guided, by the secret hope of discovering beyond the pleasant wretchedness, beyond the self-hatred, something that redeems us. The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. Mark in Portland. Hey, Mark, what's up? Yeah, I remember a few years ago when uh, in Georgia that they tried to uh, pass legislation to limit immigration, and uh, but somehow I can't remember the exact specifics of the deal, but word got out that uh, ICE was moving in and they were going to start inspecting all the... Um, the fields for immigrant uh, migrant pickers, and they all took off. <laughs> and, you know, when yeah. word got out that migrant workers were then, and then Georgia had like hundreds of millions of dollars in crops rot in their fields, and it's just amazing to me how stupid, literally how stupid these politicians are, using xenophobic rhetoric. Oh, they're not stupid, Mark. This wins them elections. Well, but they're 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 costing their own state hundreds of millions of dollars and and rotting crops. Oh, they don't I mean, care about that. They don't give a, they don't give a damn about the people in their state. What they care about is that they get to stay in office so that they can continue to get hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars into their into their. Now that the Supreme Court has allowed these leadership packs and super packs, every politician wants to have one. And with the leadership packs, you can give that money to yourself. I mean, it's, it's like that's what Donald Trump is doing right now. His, his new Save America PAC is a leadership PAC. He can literally, and he's raised several hundred million dollars already, he can literally write a check to himself with that money. Now he's, there's a little bit of a legal dance that he's got to do, but I mean, you know, it's like that's what's, that's what's going on here. These, this is corruption at a level that is unimaginable or was formerly unimaginable. I, I just can't imagine that these huge farms, these factory farms that, that have all these migrants in there, that they're they're okay with that. They're, they're okay with all these crops that are rotting in their fields. I mean, uh, if I was a farmer and, and suddenly my crew took off because they're afraid of getting deported, I'd be extremely angry with the, the politicians yeah. and what they were doing. I mean, these are factory farms that are have lots of influence, I would think, with politicians. But 
if they're getting subsidized yeah. by state government to say, okay, well, here, maybe they're giving bigger donations now. <laughs> I don't know, but I get your point, Mark. I totally get your point. Thank you for the call. Denise in Chicago. Hey, Denise, what's up? Hi, Tom. I want to disagree about the big black man that needs to be controlled and killed because Elijah McClain in Aurora, Colorado, wasn't big, wasn't a big guy. He was slight, and yet he was choked to death as well. I, I think the whole issue is that police in general reflect a society that believes that black people, no matter what age they are, because we're putting young children in handcuffs, needs to be controlled, and they need to understand their place. And if they're acting in a way that somebody else considers to be suspicious or odd, then the first thing is not to find some support and help for them. The first thing is to subdue them. And if, in fact, they get killed in the, in the, as a consequence, that's okay. Yeah, it's authoritarianism. I think a lot of it really begins with being raised that way. Yeah. Denise, thank you. Excellent point. Zach in North Hollywood. Zach, we got about 30 seconds. What's up? Rich white Republican company bosses and big ag bosses would be mad at Julio for stifling the flow of their cheap labor across the border. And by his reasoning, the Indians should have built a wall and kept out the pilgrims in Columbus. I think had they had the means and the technology, they may well have done so. Zach, thank you. Always pithy comments from Zach. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy isn't a spectator sport. It is, by definition, demos, the people, as in we the people. That is as in you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And, uh, you know, be good to people and wear your mask. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.